Hello everyone, this is The Daisy Condition. I'm Tanushree and I am so excited to be back. There's so much great content coming up. Today we're gonna talk to the lovely Navanita Basu. Nita is a recovering alcoholic who's been sober for a number of years and she's here to talk to us about her descent into addiction, how she confronted her parents and community, her recovery, and essentially the ways that her Desi conditioning contributed to either the descent into addiction or a delay in treatment. And just a whole bunch of other stuff about her experience as an alcoholic. So let's just jump right in. So Nita, let's start with how you kind of spiraled into this. Yes, uh, I do believe that a lot of it is hereditary. Um, and I think that there's something really true about alcoholics sort of breeding more alcoholics, addiction issues being uh, sort of passed down through genetics. Um, and it definitely runs in certain members of my family. Um, but I would also say a lot of it too was sort of normalized for me as a, at a very young age. I think for a lot of like, other like desi kids it's like we went we were very sheltered i know my sister and i were specifically sheltered and so the only parties that we would go to were these like indian parties where like it'll either be like puja or it would be you know some mashi was having a get together two months from now we're all like getting there and we get there three hours late and we stay there until like three o'clock <laughs> in the morning right you know and we do that whole thing and there's always a couple kakus in the odd mashi who get like really really mm -hmm. drunk and it would just be normal it would just be like okay this is just a thing i'll look at them it's fine like and and everyone would have this like oh they'll be fine it's not really a big deal and so it was just another embarrassing thing your parents were doing, you know? And I think we all kind of felt like that. I don't think I was alone in thinking that. And so it went from being this just embarrassing thing that people did. It didn't seem like this alarming thing of excess. And um, I do feel like what also ended up happening was I had grown up so sheltered and then I had gone to college so far away, three hours away, uh, to <laughs> Binghamton University. And I just went there and I was like, in hindsight, super unsocialized, like mm -hmm. did not know how to cope, did not know how to deal with things, deal with people. Um, and just like the, having gone from just being in my house the whole time with my mom and my little sister to suddenly being with like all of these people, it's a huge campus, you know, and our, and our dorm, my dorm room is like very centralized. It was like right across from the girl and, and boys bathrooms and which was awkward, but also like great for meeting people. <laughs> and and people would come over and they would hang out all the time. And it was such a weird feeling for me and I didn't understand how to cope with it. And I didn't know how to deal with any of that. And a lot of that anxiety had come to sort of ebb over time, but anxiety about school and just being uncomfortable with myself and not really knowing the root of that. Because I think a lot of it is adolescence, but I think, anyone would say when it comes to addiction like a lot of that is just it is just in you mm -hmm. you know um and and i think not not knowing at 20 years old you don't know what that is you have no idea what that is you just know you feel so uncomfortable in your own skin and that hanging out with everybody and having a couple of beers you feel a little bit more loose mm -hmm. and i know that some people got into it in order to feel more comfortable talking to people that was never talking has never been my problem um but in order to feel comfortable, yes, like 100%. Like okay. I would have two beers, three beers, and that would slowly scale up to six beers. That would yeah. slowly scale up to whatever it is, just build a tolerance as I went until I reached that point where I felt comfortable. Not like happy, yeah, but comfortable and like I would be close to being happy, yeah. which is like the best way I've ever heard. So you're talking about not being socialized and yet you've never had a problem with talking. Do you feel like you had like an issue with boundaries and that's maybe why you turned um, to alcohol? Like you had an issue with maybe opening up or like having to be too open. Like, I don't know what happened. Boundaries were sometimes my problem. My mom was very controlling, not in a malicious kind of way, but I think in a very... Asian kind of way you know yeah. like you know just very what are you doing what's happening there what's happening on the computer what like what give me your phone like mm. there's lots of that going on and I think in a weird way I am one of those people where I I'm 30 now I know this about myself I thrive on direction you know, okay. like there has to be direction. Like hot pot is my least favorite thing in the world to do <laughs> because because and we we're friends and I were talking about this earlier today because it's so loose 
goose. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I love every, that that's your example. It's it, it stresses me out to no end. Like, it's literally my nightmare. And okay. we were talking about it because we we're going that's to have fair. that and, at yeah. some point. And I was like, I can't because people would be like, just do whatever you want. I'm like, that's the worst thing in the world. I don't know what I want to do. Like, I have no idea. How long do I keep it in there? How do I know I don't get salmonella? Like, you know, all of this stuff. And if someone just said, put the pork in there for three minutes, then take put this in there for like two minutes. Like I just thrive on direction, but at the time you don't know that. Okay. And yep. so I think having gone from a super controlling atmosphere, which wasn't something that I necessarily liked, I didn't like somebody else being in control, but to now do whatever you want. Now you're in college. You're picking your own degree. You're picking your own classes. Mm. You're picking your own friends. You know, it was like so much freedom and so much freedom overload. And I think. As an adult, you sort of learn, certainly as an alcoholic in recovery, you learn a big part of the program is putting these steps in order to create control and structure in your life. That is such a big part of recovery that they like hammer into you. Mm. That structure is the key to recovery. There has to be some kind of structure, whether it's say I go to meetings every Monday at 8 p.m. at that place, you know, where I see these people, and if I don't show up, I know 40 of them are gonna call me. Like, you know, but there has to be some kind of structure there, because otherwise you're you just off to your own device. Mm-hmm. It's just a terrible thing. So I think in that case, yeah, I think like the having gone from so many boundaries, too many boundaries, to literally no boundaries, I think I knew I wasn't cool with either one of those things and I couldn't identify. Because you would think if you're not cool with one, you're fine with the other. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems very binary when you look at it. And I think I just didn't know how to behave when I was 20 about it. So. Yeah, and it's also kind. Of, it sounds like it was like stimulus overload or like mm-hmm. information overload, and alcohol sure. we know is has a numbing effect. Yeah, you know, and so that's interesting because I have I understand that alcohol is a depressant, and to some extent I have vague memories, very early memories of alcohol being a depressant. The other thing I remember, and this is fast forwarding quite a bit, um, but I had been sober for a month and I had a relapse. And I remember the way that I described the relapse, people thought I was nuts. And then sober friends of mine or people in meetings were like, I got you. <laughs> like, I know exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like, I had, I had gone to, I even remember the bar. And I had gone to Desmond's and I had gone there and I would ordered, a, I sat there obstinately because I like, wanted to prove something to the man. I didn't know who the man was, but I wanted to prove something <laughs> right, to him. Yeah, I know you the know. feeling. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, mm, screw you. And so I sat there drinking a ginger ale for two hours just to prove that I could by myself. And okay. so like, what did you think was going to happen? And so then eventually, I always, Jameson Ginger was my go-to. Mm. And so then it was only a short leap from ginger ale to Jameson Ginger. And so I had gotten the Jameson. And I, I had the ginger ale, and I said, just give me a shot of Jameson. And so they given me a shot of Jameson, and I had swigged. I meant to pour it into my ginger ale, and I remember drinking it by wow. itself. Wow. Just kind of, like, automatically. Well, like I was just muscle. like, here, look, I just, I think I missed it. I don't think it was okay. automatic. I think I, like, looked at it. Because there is a certain sense of, like, this thing's, it is now different, right? Okay, it's different yeah. from, like, going from, oh, I think I'm going to cut back for a week to, like, now I am sober, I'm in a program, and I'm going to throw that away in this moment. But, yeah. Which you sort of feel like you have no control over right like I didn't feel like I had an option there but I had drank it and I remember feeling like the best way I can describe this I really like analogies that are weird but I best way I could describe this is like uh during I think it's Hurricane Irene or Hurricane Sandy like oh like the power was out and so like my parents were had a generator or something and a lot of other places did and so it sort of keeps the power going to some extent but you don't really have that much going on and then when the lights come on it's like this big like oh like we're back online you know (laughs) it's like this weird like space opera moment and that was how it felt like I had that shot and I literally felt like oh like the lights are on like I'm now plugged in yeah like I'm good I'm great like this is exactly what I needed this is exactly where I need to be you know and it was funny because people people who are not who have normal brains (laughs) were like you sure you didn't like do cocaine instead of take a shot of Jameson? And then I remember talking to so many people who were sober and who had relapsed or just had vague memories of having drank after a while. Um, and it was, they were like, I totally understand. Like it just, it, it's a weird, this is where I, I subscribe to the whole genetics thing because I'm not a science person, but like there is, there's just something biologically different mm. in the way that. I process alcohol versus my sister doesn't drink actually, but um, but the versus the way that my sister might drink, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. her having a beer, me having a beer, we will literally our bodies will. 
behave differently because mm-hmm. mine felt like alive like there was no depressant there there was no like relaxing and like and I wasn't a relaxed drunk by any means like I didn't suddenly become a zen drunk I was like on and I was like all jazz hands and stories and you know working the room and going everywhere like I was an energetic drunk and I was too much of an energetic drunk but I just felt like I every single time I've ever had it without fail I always felt like this is exactly what I need to be doing this is exactly where I need to be like Mm -hmm. it just was the perfect mixture of everything feeling right in that moment um and still not being satisfied with that like knowing that everything felt right still not feeling happy right like not feeling satisfied there's still something missing but feeling like I'm so close to it okay right like oh now I see the finish line like I'm one beer away from being happy it was the best way I like explained yeah that makes a lot of sense did it feel like it was like a good enough or like pretty good no it felt no never nothing ever felt good enough okay which I think is kind of how addiction works to some extent too like I don't think I don't want to like generalize for everybody I've never heard of anyone who was an addict current or recovering and that has ever felt like I got it I'm good (laughs) I'm at that point so I guess what I meant is it's good enough as long as you don't get to a certain yeah like as long as you can function in the morning I think you know what I think that was a good way to explain it to myself Mm -hmm. like oh I'm getting up I I will say like a lot of people have interesting stories about uh, how functioning they were and and mine were never connected to work it was very weird because like having now been in my industry for a while I've heard from many people over the years I've been sober three and a half years now and like and and I've heard over the years from people who were like look we knew something was up like Mm -hmm. you know we leave the bar at one o'clock in the morning you were still there but like you were still here at like eight o'clock in the morning so like what were we gonna say but it never affected work-wise like I was always able to like get to and it's weird the, the stuff you can you manage to do and so I told myself like all right, I'm getting to work on time. I'm showering, I'm getting to work. I don't smell like booze. I didn't. And so I felt like, okay, like, sure, it wasn't great that I, like, you know, went out and screamed at my best friend and made out with some random guy and, like, ended up somewhere else. Like, that wasn't great, but, like, I still managed to get to work. And I still managed to do my job. So it wasn't, like, on the outside, it's not like it was ruining your life. It didn't seem to you Well, I mean, it it didn't seem to me. I would say, well, you know what? I wouldn't even say that. I would say that some people definitely felt like I, I definitely lost a lot of friends okay towards the tail end of my drinking who were just like because at a certain point like you don't want to deal with that anymore you yeah. want to be able to have a couple of beers with a friend after work and you don't want it to turn into like an all-night rager you're not looking for that anymore um and then when you're with that friend who and we all have that like we all have people in mind I don't want to say we have that friend but mm-hmm. that person in mind where we're like they, they, this person just can't do things a little bit mm-hmm. and I and I am that person mm-hmm. you know and so a lot of people were like I'm, I'm off of this ride like I'm off of this roller coaster this is not what I signed up for um, so I think to them for sure I think you know what's the phrase I'm gonna butcher it like only to our own problems are we so blind mm-hmm. like I think to me it never seemed like because that was a justification well I'm going to work you know, I'm going to work, I'm making money, I'm not losing my income. I had two jobs at the time. I was working in publishing, but I was also working as a waitress. And, you know, that entailed, like, on the weekends, I lived in the city, so on the weekends I would drive up to Westchester to the restaurant I worked at, still make it there on time, work, go out drinking, be crazy, probably spend all the money I just made, and then drive all the way back, eventually start driving all the way back while I was drunk. Wow. And, and it was like a slow climb over years that that was happening too, but it, it was all justified. I was never missing a day from work, and I felt like, okay, this is fine. Well, as I think other people were just sort of like, what the hell is going on? Like, I was like fighting with people constantly. I was always on the outs with friends, and then making up with them very quickly. And I have been very lucky in, in the friends that I have, but, but a lot of times, like, just, I was always fighting with somebody, you know, for some reason that I didn't even know. But then okay. it's like obstinance, right? Like you you can't admit that things have gotten that out of control, you know? And then I think after a while, some people also realize that, you know, a drunk is not a person you want to argue with because you're not going to win that argument. Like yeah. there's just no explaining anything to them. They're, yeah. just, they don't, they're not looking at the same world as you. And you can't explain anything. You can't be like, hey, you're drinking too much. And an alcoholic's even worse because even when they're sober, they're not sober. You know what I mean? Like their their mind is still. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's like very much being the dry drunk, like the difference between being dry and being sober, which was hammered into me very early on, that I didn't understand pre-relapse. So like that, like just mentally where everything is external, 
Everything okay. is everyone else's problem, and it was never my own. Like, that I was unhappy, that I was feeling unsatisfied, that I was feeling like I needed something to make myself feel better. That's, like, the root of it, yeah. you know? And I think, but I think also, like, there's some of it is conditioning. Like, we're, we're taught, I can't feel like the only person who was taught this way, and, and I think this is very much a Asian busy thing, but, like, we're, like, taught, like, you're... That your goal is to go to college, get a job. Yep. That's what you do. Yeah. And Make then, money, go to Disney World. Yeah. And yeah. and get married. Yep. You know? <laughs> and so, didn't do the married part, but like, you know, I went to college and I got a job. Yeah. I was fine. You know? And I was like, I'm fine. Of course I'm fine. Yeah. You and when you grew up thinking your whole life that like, this is what I'm supposed to do and I'm doing it. So why yeah. is my drinking a problem? Right. Like, why is this a big deal? Like, everything is fine. Yeah. You know, uh, not realizing that, like, everything was not fine. Like, right, everything yeah. was a problem. Yeah. So. Wow, very interesting. I know you mentioned that some people said in retrospect, like, yeah, we kind of knew something was going on. And a lot of, I guess, the warning signs for them were, like, you were getting into fights and that, with them that, like, didn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Are there any other, like, kind of warning signs that they talked about? Um, fights were a big one. I was, I was definitely a, I, I think people are different types of drunks, right? So you have, like, amorous drunks, you have whatever philosophical drunks. I was <laughs> yeah. a little bit one of those, too. I most certainly walked into a bar um, in front of many people that I worked with, so they all remember this and love this story. And I walked in and I was like... At 11.30 and I claimed I had just come from work and people were like, no, you didn't. It's 11.30 at night. Like, we don't know where you were, but it wasn't work. <laughs> and I, like, came in totally smashed, insisting I was sober and had come from work. And I was like, but I have an important question. Is it called sand because it's between sea and the land? And everyone was like, get out. Like, get what? Well, who made you Socrates? Like, get out of here. So, like, I, a I was... a really good question. <laughs> I was like, oh, my I'm God. I'm always going to wonder now. I know, yeah, and I, I still have not found that answer. <laughs> no one would answer it for me. But, um, so I was a little bit of that, but I was mostly a belligerent drunk, you know. Okay. So, so I very much felt like, I think this is an alcoholic thing. Everything is external, which I said before. But I think for me specifically, my discomfort in my own life was not something I could understand. It wasn't something I understood when I got sober either, which wasn't by choice. And so, you know, but like for me, it was everyone else's fault. You know, the fact that I didn't feel pretty enough, I didn't feel accomplished enough, the fact mm. that like I couldn't, I like stopped visiting home as often. I visited home a, a fair amount of times because a restaurant that I worked at incidentally happened to be down okay. the street from my parents. Yeah. So I would be there a lot. But at the same vein, like I never went to any of like the Indian functions that they had like when I was an adult for a very long time. Only recently do I go to like one or two. Mm -hmm. And I like didn't like anyone that I grew up with anymore. Like I think I'm still friends with a few of them. I'm fine with everyone now, like in my own brain. Maybe mm -hmm. they're not fine with me. <laughs> but but I remember for a period of time feeling like no, I hate these people. Yeah. Like, I hate them. I don't like you. Like, what are you, you're a doctor? Like, I can't stand you. Like, you and your stupid life. Like, it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it felt so real. Like, that, like, my discomfort and my, like, being unhappy clearly was that person's fault. How dare you be living your life this way? Yeah, yeah I mean, it played on your insecurities. A hundred percent. I don't, I don't want to speak for anyone else's parents. I definitely see it in my own parents. I definitely see it in the people that they're, you know, that, that are in their circle. And of course they have relationships that mean a lot to them. But yeah. like, there is always this comparing to somebody else, whether it's like we were younger and comparing their kids, yeah. so-and-so is doing this, or like, you know, oh, but this person, but their house, so we can't have them over because you don't understand. Like, I haven't done the, th and then the, the garage isn't fixed and like my garden is terrible <laughs> right, and like the ponepata is like this, like, <laughs> you know, it's like always the ponepata. <laughs> Uh, you know, and so it's like, there's always this comparing and it's always external. It's always based on somebody else. And it's mm -hmm. never, I think I was never brought up. And I don't know if this is cultural. I think it's cultural and, and partly just me. But I had never learned the skill of learning how to just sort of sit by myself and be a person in and of myself. That yeah. had nothing to do with. I my don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's unique to you. I think it is a cultural thing, like maybe an Asian thing. You know, we're not taught to like look inside ourselves and think about our hobbies and like right. you know, unless it's something that would increase your value on the marriage market. Right. Yeah. Or your career market. <laughs> or the career market. Yeah. It was interesting too because I adopted that hobby mentality without even realizing it. I remember I have too many hobbies now, but uh, I remember back then having these two jobs and still being like. Because I would see people like run, which at the time made no sense to me. I didn't even go to gym class, mm. which is funny if you look at my life now. But, <laughs> um, and I remember being like, no, I should jog for, 
you know, health because I wanted to lose weight. And of course, not drinking didn't factor into my mind right. ever. It didn't even occur. It wasn't even like I thought of it and then I decided I couldn't do it. It literally never occurred to me mm. that I could curtail my drinking in order to lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, it's just so stupid. And I was like, surely I can jog a little bit, but I have no time. I'm working and then I'm going to the bar and then, you know, by the time I get home, it's one o'clock in the morning. When am I going to drink? Oh, when am I going to, when am I going to drink? But when am I, when am I going to run? When am I going to do anything? When am I going to pick up a hobby? You know? And, and there was just no time for any of those things. Like it was, it was my job and drinking. That was it, you know? And I had friends, but they factored into one of those two things. I had drinking buddies and I had friends from work and I luckily work in a very social job. Um, but that's it. Like that was that was everything. And so that with the combination of just never feeling comfortable and then, and then just getting away with murder, like, you know, too many people, like people would be so nice to me and they would be like, yeah, you know, you were a monster last night. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I get it. We all had too many, but the amount of times I heard from people, like even I knew at some point I'm hearing this, we've all had too many, Mm. way too many times, Mm. but no one would say anything. Right. So I'd be like, I'm good, right? And probably also because like you were still showing up, you were still right. doing things you needed. And I was to like, do. look, I said I was sorry, <laughs> like so I did the work, right? That's the work. And so, and then I was drunk driving, and that slowly started. It started just with like, oh, someone wasn't able to give me a ride, and so I drank a lot of water, and I was fine. I sobered up, and I managed to get myself home. So then I was like, oh, I'm good. I don't have to do the two beers, and then. I can't drive home thing because like I was clearly fine. I had five and I was able to drive home and I felt fine. So then I was like pushing the envelope. Okay, like I'm good. I don't need to get a driver. Like I don't need to spend money on a cab. I can spend that money somewhere else, like on another round, you know? And and it would just kind of scale from there. And then I lived in the city. I like lived from the Bronx to Queens. And so then instead of just driving 20 minutes home from the bar, I would be driving 40 minutes home. And, and wow, drunk all the way home. I was a fantastic wow. drunk driver until I wasn't. And so, yeah, and like I remember one time, twice I was picked up by cops. One time, he, I never had to blow into a breathalyzer those two times. Okay. Um, I should Interesting. Say, I should say three times I was picked up by cops because the third time I most certainly did. But the <sighs> first two times they had pulled me on the side of the road and I wasn't driving erratically. And I was wearing my waitress uniform, both incidences, and it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was. And the first time, the guy was like, just slow down. Like, really? Like, where are you going? And, like, I look so young, and I look tired, you know? Like, and he felt bad. And I was saying, like, oh, I'm a waitress. I'm going home. Like, I live in Queens. I'm over in, like, where Sleepy Hollow. Like, you know? And so he's like, all right, but just, like, drive slower, you know? Um, and then the second time, I, he knew something was up. Uh, Because I was like swerving on the road a little bit. I think Mm -hmm. the first time I was just speeding because I didn't have any concept of what that was when I was drinking. And so he had made me park at like, I even know where it was, like the Sawmill Parkway. There's like a gas station over there, like past the Starbucks and Dobbs Ferry. And like he made me park in there. I don't know if he actually did this, but he said that he told the gas station attendant to call him if I decided to leave. Mm -hmm. And he made me park in that gas station, and he told me again to the back seat and go to sleep. Wow. And he was like, and you are not driving home. If you drive home before the morning, he's going to call me, and I'll come get you. And I believed him. <laughs> like, I don't know if he actually did that. It, like, doesn't make a lot of sense. But I was, like, so scared and also yeah. drunk. So, like, I went to the back seat, and I was like, I'm not going to, and, like, went straight <laughs> to sleep. And so, and I did that. And I remember thinking, I'm in trouble. I was fine. Mm. And it would just be stuff. And then I remember very soon, um, I had driven a bunch of my girlfriends home and I was wasted. It was really bad. And so these, they, they like allowed you to drive them home. I don't know. Or did they not know? No, 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 no. They, they both, they knew and they certainly did not want to allow it. I was just super belligerent about it. And they were like, okay. And so, and I remember this, we like, we're, we're weirdly still friends. And I was falling asleep at the wheel and the girl sitting in the passenger seat was holding the steering wheel the whole time, which I was irrationally angry about. Cause I felt like she was saying that I was a bad driver. Yeah. And she was saying to my face, no, I don't think you're a bad driver, but she's very much steering the car. And you know, and, and everyone in the back and they're just like, slow down, let's take the local roads, yeah. you know, and like all of this stuff. And they're just coaxing me. And I think a lot of it was very kid glove behavior, you know, okay. like let's, 
let's not try to like wake the beast almost, you know? That was a moment of real guilt because they were saying like, look, the next morning, they're like, it's fine, it's cool. Which is what everyone said, it's fine, it's cool. They're like, but that's not cool. Like, we please don't do that again. We have our license, we can drive, like don't get that upset, we're not saying anything about you, we're happy to drive, like it's not a problem. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I felt uncomfortable and I felt really embarrassed, but it also, like there's no consequence, right? Because it was done. Mm. Like, I apologize, they issued this request that I felt very confident. I like never intended, like every single time I would go out, my mother and I had a conversation about this too very early on where she would be like, I just don't understand why you would drive. And I was like, I don't know how to explain to you that it was never intentional. Like mm -hmm. I would always go being like, if I'm drunk, I'll get someone else to drive. Like, but it was a different person leaving that bar that walked in. Yeah. So, um, and then the third time, third time was like the, was half of the come to Jesus moment, which was, I was coming home I had, since that incident had happened a few months prior, I don't remember how many months, but it was months. It was within the years, within 2016. And I had also, and I remember this was Super Bowl night, had a conversation with a friend of mine who, longtime friend of mine, who is a recovering alcoholic, 15 years, 16 years, something. And he had gently said, hey, why don't, when you go out, why don't you just give me a call? I always like company, like, and I always get bored. Like, why don't you just give me a call? And I was like, okay, sure. And so I had started to do that. I was like, oh, he's bored. Mm -hmm. He wants company, so I'll just call him. So I did that for a while, which was very well planned by him. Yeah, wow. Right, yeah, it was for, I mean, someone who knows, right? And so, so I was mad at something. And I'd gone to a bar with that friend. And we had gone there. I'd gotten super trashed. Do not remember anything after this. Everything from here on, I have no memory of. I still have no memory of. It has been told to me many, many times. I apparently had agreed that I would be driven to my parents' house. And I said I needed to get something from my car. And I had gone into my car and I just left. <gasps> oh my God. So then they take off, he, it's him, ch takes off after me to find out where I'm going, what I'm right, doing. Yeah. And then to my best understanding, instead of going down to the city, I started going across the Tappan Zee. Oh my God. So he's like, I don't know where she's going. Like I literally have no idea where she's going. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know whether, we still don't know this because I have no memory, like whether I had fallen asleep at the wheel or like what happened, but I had hit the median wall mm -hmm. and either, I, I don't know if it was like intentional or not, but hit the median wall to the left and then had gone straight right into the side of the bridge because we were on the bridge at this point. Okay. And so gone into this and straight into the side of the bridge, like the car is totaled. Car Oof. is completely totaled. Car is completely totaled. Uh, yes, no, like I didn't get hurt necessarily in that moment. Um, but what did happen was like in the months afterwards, like I would always have like weird tremors, like, oh. you know, and I would always have this residual pain and like, I still to this day, like my left shoulder, like every now and then like tweaks a little bit. Mm. So a lot of it, I think it was like seatbelt, whatever. Okay. But, um, wow. but, uh, but yeah, and so I was in that car, and I was still insisting everything was fine. He's now screaming at me. He's mm -hmm. like, you've told, like, I can't yeah. help you. He's like, what What am I going to do? And I was like, just drive me home. And he was like, that's not, yeah, no. I leave the car. Yeah, he was like, no, you're sitting here. You're staying here. This has to stop. Mm -hmm. Like, this is just, and I was not having it. I was just crying, and then I was yelling at him, and then I was crying again, and I was feeling mm -hmm. bad for myself, and then I was like, calling every ex-boyfriend I ever had, telling them that I hated them. You know, like, just mm -hmm. none of the behavior that made sense. And then the cops had shown up and arrested me. They had me blow into a breathalyzer. They arrested my ass because I like blew, I like blew something crazy. And so they were like, you, but you're coming with us, like yeah. at least for the night. And I was like sitting there, I was crying. I'd like, it made no sense. Then I was mad, I was yelling at them because that's smart. Right. And I was like yelling at them. <laughs> then I was crying, then I was confused. I frequently, I, this I sort of remember a little bit. I frequently kept asking them where I was because I would wake up and not know where I was. And then there was a girl who was also being busted for drunk driving who was next to me who was looking at me like, you have problems. <laughs> like, I remember I was like, how dare she? Who is this person? And then it was like totally, like you would think that this was like rock bottom. It like should have been. I got my period in jail. Oh my God. Like, I, right? Like 
just put it all that out is there. So stressful. It got my period in that jail. That just made me ten times right, more stressed. Right, right, right. Got me stressed too because I'm drunk. I can't <laughs> deal with it. I can't even like move properly. And I was like, mm. and I'm handcuffed because like I would wake up, my hands was hand, my left hand was handcuffed, and I want to say either my left ankle or right ankle was also handcuffed. I was like, I can't. I was like, I count my period, and they're like, we know, like we can see <laughs> that. And I was like, I don't like. I was like, I have a pad in my purse. So then this cop is going through my belongings to try to find this pad. And then the girl who I'm yelling at for mm-hmm. being a loser was <laughs> like, I can help her. Like, let me help her put the pad on. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was like, I can't let you be in the bathroom by yourselves. So we had to have the bathroom open because he can't have like two people who are in jail hang out in the bathroom yeah. themselves. It makes sense. Door is wide open. She's helping me clean up my period and also wow. put a pad in there with the cops watching us this to is a oversee. Very nice girl. Yeah, this is right. We're yeah. screaming at her. <laughs> like it makes no sense. And I don't I don't know. I've literally ever saw her again. I have no idea who this girl is. Mm-hmm. And she's doing that. It like should be humiliating and I had a weird feeling that it was humiliating. I was just yeah. irrationally angry at everybody. I was like mad at the cops. Because, like, now it makes perfect sense. Why would you let two girls who are in jail go into the bathroom by themselves? It made no sense to me at the time. Well, you weren't thinking about it, yeah. No, I was like, you're a perv. And he was like, believe me, I don't want to be here. (laughs) He's like, this is uncomfortable. I didn't, like, state troopers in NIAC do not sign up for this experience. You know, And but she's doing that. And then I remember they had released me. I started crying. Like, at a certain point, it hit me that I was in trouble. Like, it hit me then. Not when I got arrested and was blowing into the breathalyzer. They fingerprinted me, and and it just I don't even know what it like hit me like a Mack truck. Like oh my like life has changed. Like I've now been to jail, you know. Um, I've been picked up by cops before, but I've always like coasted by on the fact that I was a girl and it was really sweet, you yeah, know. Yeah. And they incidentally <laughs> recommended me a lawyer. They were like, wow. this is the lawyer that the judge really hates, and they gave me a hug. This one guy came out. I don't know what manner of copy was he like seemed to be like kind of a bossy kind of guy like everyone was listening to him and he came over and he gave me a glass of Gatorade and he gave me a hug and he gave me the business card of the lawyer I ended up calling and so the judge hates this guy so he's probably the guy you want Mm. and I was like I don't know what I was saying I think I was saying like I'm sorry and he was like you have to stop talking (laughs) like you have to you can't say anymore because I think I kept trying to apologize for drunk driving and they were like you really need to stop Uh, talking right now like we have to advise you to stop speaking I don't think I did (laughs) Um, I think I just kept saying stuff I think either kept saying that well you don't understand I was mad at so and so and like and and he was like it's he was like just call the lawyer get help it'll be fine it'll be fine and he was like this happens all of the time you know and I remember everyone like they they were so nice like which made no sense to me you know, because it was a different kind of nice from the way everyone had behaved around me before. You know, everyone else was like, oh, you're right, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. But these people, like, it was not fine. They were arresting me. This was now, this is now on my record. You know, like, if you do a background check, you find it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I was go, I was in jail. I was going to be taken to court. Like, all of these things, they weren't, like, letting me off. But they were just incredibly nice where they were like, this happens. And they're like, call the lawyer, do the things you'll be okay. Like, it's not, it's not going to go away, but you can fix it. It's fine. Don't, don't panic. And then I'd gone home, broke it to my parents, which was, which was a fun thing. I like felt very strongly about the fact that I needed to sell them also because I needed a place to house the car for a little bit. Mm. So I had to be like, can I leave the car at your place? By the way, I crashed it. By the way, I got arrested and I am going to be in court for the next while. Yeah. Um, Did you ever consider not telling them? I did, I did, and then ultimately, it sounds very selfish, I realized I couldn't because I needed a place to put the car, because mm, okay. I was paying for it being towed, and yeah. I was paying for the impound lot, and I was like, a really, it just really needs to be somewhere, and so I was like, I have to call them and tell them, you know, and I remember it was interesting because I still, I was calling people, nobody was really surprised. Okay. Like, in a way that, it, like, if you think your good friend calls you and says, hey, I was in jail last night, you'd be like, what happened? Yeah. Nobody was like that. Everyone wow. was like, oh, okay. And I got a lot of, so what are you going to do now? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I guess I have to, like, lay low for a little bit mm-hmm. and get through this and it'll be fine. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. And then I remember, like, maybe the next day I was sitting there and I was watching Craig Ferguson's monologue about Britney Spears. 
which if you've not seen, I highly <laughs> encourage you to YouTube it. He starts off by talking about how he's never going to make fun of Britney Spears again. Okay. And it parlays into him having been in recovery for a really long time. And the discomfort at watching somebody else go through something. Okay. And understanding that he doesn't know what it is, but it's clearly something. And how, had you had a camera on him, it would have been the same thing. And so then he talks a little bit about his process. And at the end, it's very like, look, if any of this resonates, maybe you may want to consider. You know, and I remember I was really struck by it because he was expressing how he loved Guinness. He still loves Guinness. He's always going to love Guinness. And like, and it was a weird thing to see, especially as someone at that point, to see that like, oh, here's someone like... Uh, they're not like sitting here being like this is the evil of the world i just can't do this thing and and i don't know where at a certain point like this is like sort of the half the rock bottom that like clicked in together where i was like maybe i am one of these people where like mm. this is just a thing that i can't do yeah and so i called my parents and then i called people to say that i was getting sober my parents did not understand did um, they know you had a problem to begin with not at all Wow. Um, no, they had no idea. Like, my mom thought that, like, something was wrong. Yeah. But, like, she... My mom also doesn't drink. Okay. My mom and my sister don't drink. And my dad drinks. And um, I think to my mom, alcohol is just evil. So she was just like, okay, fine. Stop drinking. Like, why'd you drink... Driven drunk anyway? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like... Um. That's so she doesn't necessarily thing. understand where um, or how that addiction would develop. No, she place. like none of it like makes any sense. Stop. Right? Yeah. yeah, and also like she didn't understand blackouts either. Like if whenever she would hear anyone be like, "Oh, I don't remember," she like in my mom and to this day, my mom thinks that person's lying. Mm. Like, oh, they're lying to get out of it. And I have since then tried to be like, they do not remember, yeah. <laughs> which is still not good. But they do not remember. It is not a conspiracy to lie to you. Yeah. And my dad was very like, oh, okay, well, you know, you just, like, stay off of it for a little bit, and then you just learn to have two, like, you know, and, and like, it was not Moderation. a thing. Yeah, like, I mean, that's most people's reaction that I had come yeah. to see, like, especially within our community, people within our community who knew about it, mm -hmm. and I called the lawyer, I had gone to court, I had asked no one to come to court with me because I was humiliated by the whole experience. The judge was super mean, uh, made me read this humiliating statement and made fun of me in court, and ugh, which I still think was like a little excessive, but you know, I also get it. Um, and then I had signed a plea deal, and I had, I had stuck with that. And it was over within a month. So one of the things that I had to do was I had to be sober. Okay, that's part of the plea deal? It wasn't part of the plea okay. deal. It was my lawyer's recommendation in order to get the plea deal. Because oh, it was okay. a big part of why I got it. Okay. Because he hinged on this girl is 26 years old. She doesn't have a record. She's never had a problem. She comes from a good family, good background. She's ill. She's a problem. And But look, she's fixing it. So I remember he said, your court date's this day. You need to go to a 12-step program before that and document that. Um, and he had gotten me in to see, there's a program, I don't remember what it stands for, OASIS, it stands for Office of Something Something Substance Abuse, whatever. <laughs> okay. Um, and they, that person meets with you to judge whether or not you have a problem, or if you're just like pretending or whatever. Um, and that guy was, incidentally, he was very, he was not nice to me, but he wasn't mean either. He just was like, I've seen you a dime a dozen. Um, but I remember, and he, he, but he wasn't nice. He wasn't nice. He asked like very difficult questions and was very offhand and didn't look me in the face. He was this old like Irish dude. And what does that mean? Like difficult questions? What, what he was like, he was asking, well, he was like asking about like, hmm, are you promiscuous when you're drunk? Are you, you know, just like, just oh, did not okay. like, you know, just putting it just, it felt more, the whole process felt de very dehumanizing, you know? Yeah. And like, I think like. I mean, I know this isn't therapy, but right. like, I think therapy in general, like, is just like a little too clinical. It sounds like that was the experience yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not necessarily been my experience with therapy. I'm a big believer in therapy, mm -hmm. although I came to it very, very late, not yeah. even at this stage. I think, well, so I guess like for me, like the intake appointment, so it sounds yeah. like that's similar to what your experience Yeah, yeah, was. It, it felt like that. It yeah. absolutely. No, totally a big proponent of therapy. Yeah. yeah. And, um... But it was funny because there was one point where he was like, where did you go to school? Like, still not looking me in the face. And at this point, I had meetings with the lawyer. I'd already met with the prosecutor. I'd already been in court. Yeah. Um, Weird that he's not looking at you. He's not. He doesn't care. Like, he, I mean, not like on purpose. He's just like writing stuff down. He just oh, didn't care. Okay. And, Weird. And like literally the definition of a honey badger, this guy. 
Um, one, I love this guy, even though I never, I also never saw him again. Um, he said, where did you go to school? I'll never forget it. And I said, Binghamton. And he went, oh, so you're smart. He was like, ah, oh, smart kid, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, not that smart, clearly. Mm -hmm. And he looked up at me then and he was like, knock that shit off. And Ooh. he was like, he was like, knock that shit off. He was like, because everyone in here either does not care about you. He was like, I don't care about you. He was like, we either don't care about you or they want to get you for this. He was like, nobody's on your side right now. He's like, not even your lawyer. He was like, your lawyer wants money. He's like, nobody's on your side. You are literally the only person on your side. So don't, so knock that shit off. Like, and just went back to what he was doing. And that like stayed with me, that whole idea. And that, that has stayed with me through so much too. Like the idea of like, whenever I get, and I'm, I'm guilty of being self-deprecating a lot. And I think of course, yeah. a lot of that, I think a lot of that is cultural. You know, um, and I think that was definitely my parents' way of raising us too. You know, if there was a problem, it was our fault. You know, and yeah. and yeah, just to be critical, right? Exactly, to be ex extremely critical but then, and like taking it too far. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. And and it's their way of showing love, and it's tough love, but like way too tough. Yeah. And and that moment of being like, oh, like no, that's right. Like there, there's no one, and not even in a mean way I'm like saying how everyone's been very supportive I'm still with many supportive people now but they that no one is really essentially on your side like they don't necessarily know your story they don't really you're not their number one like you are your own number one and that was like my first taste of that and I knew that that like hit me That's at a, a certain very point. good point I think that applies across the board completely for every illness yeah and like it just doesn't you it, have to be on your own side and it's so simple but it's like so hard because i think there's also this like feeling and i don't know if you were raised the same way but like i remember whenever i would sort of tout myself for being something like my mom who again very close with now but like my mom would be like nope you're being too proud you're being too proud like you need to be more humble you need to be more humble and i believe humility is important mm -hmm. it's a huge important thing but i think there's a difference between being humble and then just shooting yourself for mm -hmm. no reason mm -hmm. You know, and I think that I was raised that way. Like I, I mean, was, I think the line is that you learn to not acknowledge yourself, but you have to acknowledge yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you don't acknowledge who you are and the things that you're good at, and the things that, and part of that is acknowledging what you're not good at. Like yeah. I do not understand math and science. It's not. It's not like I'm never going to be the person calculating the tip at a restaurant. I worked in a restaurant. I'm still not <laughs> calculating the tip when we go out. I don't understand how it works. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know that, and that's fine. Yeah. You know. But I'm really good at my job, and I'm really good at other hobbies, and I'm really good at these things, and I and I know these things, um, and I can feel like a sense of pride in them, and I can and I can jump into a room in certain topics and say this is a thing that I know about, and in other cases be like, you know what, <laughs> take a back seat. This person knows more, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with being on your own side. Like I think it doesn't necessarily implicitly mean like I am the best person when it comes to everything, but it's yeah. just knowing knowing what is best for you in that moment and wanting the best for you because I want the best for a lot of people but I do not want the best in the nicest possible way I do not want the best for people above myself mm -hmm. you know what I mean and it's not coming from a place of being threatened but like I I want the best for you but I don't want the best for you at the detriment of myself yeah of course yeah you know yeah. what I mean and I think we're all on that same point but there is this weird culture of like I should care about you more than I care about myself oh yeah martyrdom yeah and that doesn't work Big with the parents. that doesn't work right because then you're thinking that about somebody else and ultimately what happens is you have a whole bunch of people who don't care about themselves yeah and so so that was like a weird thing that came together a little too late but I remember at that point it like stayed with me and then I was I was going to meetings I was staying sober I was not doing the work as they say I like felt like I was I felt like oh I'm going to these meetings and I'm sitting here listening to everyone talk about being sober and and it's the same buzzwords, mm -hmm. um, which is probably what contributes to the whole like culty air behind it, which is true. What, what like what buzzwords would you? Well, like gratitude, gratitude lists, uh, humility. Um, there's the gratitude is a big one. The miracle okay. that everyone just talks about a miracle. Life is a miracle. This is a miracle. Sobriety is a miracle. Being grateful. I remember. Um, I won't say the word, but I remember being like maybe four days sober or something, something under a week, and everybody was talking about being grateful. And when it came my turn to speak, instead of just saying, I don't want to speak, which I could have said, or, you know, just talking about how I was having a tough time, which is what you should use that space for, I told everyone they were the C word. Oh, oh wow. For being, for being stupid and grateful for stuff that didn't make any sense. Mm. And 
not a single person didn't come up to me afterwards and they were like thank you for coming thank you for sharing we hope you come back like wow. every single person came up gave me their number thank you for coming thank you for coming like specifically like in a way that so i they knew exactly what oh I yeah if i from. saw that to this day i that's the first person i'm going to even if i don't feel like coming up to anyone but sometimes i go into a meeting i'm like i'm just going in and i'm leaving you know and i just feel like going home i would instantly go up to that person and be like this person's in trouble they yeah. need something like just um, and I just, it made no sense to me. I was like, how, how could you be grateful for this thing that we have lost together? And my parents were being supportive too, even though I had no idea what was going on. Like yeah. they didn't understand. They didn't like, my dad kept talking about moderating, like, oh, at some point you'll be able to moderate. It's fine. And my mom was like, well, just don't be stupid, you know, but alcohol is evil, you know? And, and they both had very conservative outlooks and, and they weren't telling anyone what happened, you know? So like this big momentous thing happened to me, but they didn't want to tell anyone. And it was this sort of thing yeah. that we swept under the rug. And then a month after, and I remember I got a month chip and then I'd gone in, I'd signed the plea deal. It was signed. I was not going to jail. Cause that was a big thing. Like I was, I ha I, for that charge, you go to prison. It's a felony. You go to prison. Mm -hmm. So I got, it became a misdemeanor. I had to do a bunch of other stuff instead, but I didn't have to go to prison because the argument made was I was ill, I had no record, and going to jail meant I would lose my job, lose my home, like lose everything. And and that was a, and they felt it was a bigger detriment to, to my health and recovery mm -hmm. to do that than to make me do community service and set me up so that I would succeed. Okay. You know? Incidentally, I think that was the right choice. Yeah. Like, not even just for myself, I think for other people as yeah. well. Oh. Um, that sounds really reasonable. Yeah, it was super reasonable. So <laughs> so I think, like, me having to read a humiliating statement in, in court is totally fine. But at the time, I was like, this asshole. So what, like, humiliating statement? Like it they, was, I don't even, you know what, I don't even remember. But do they, like, write something for you or, like... Uh, it wasn't so much that he wrote it for me. It was so much that, like, both the prosecutor and my lawyer were, like the judge wants to hear this because the judge ultimately like you're signing the agreement with the prosecutor but the judge needs to like accept it and like whatever like he's sentencing you mm -hmm. and so they're like when you go up in front of the judge you say this okay and, you know and and he apparently is very well known for cracking down on drunk driving like it's something that he feels very strongly about which he should it's a it's a horrible thing mm -hmm. um and and so it really was like being contrite i am a piece of crap like wow. and i you know, have no worth, but I'm going to try to find where, you know, like just a completely groveling kind of thing. That's a horrible statement to <laughs> I me. was so angry That does not it. sound productive. <laughs> wow. And I was like, and then to, looking back on it, I'm like, I understand it. And also it's what, it's what it was. What am I going to do about it now? Um, but at the time I was like, Neh. And so I left, I took the train back. I won't say it's because of that. I almost like instantly forgot about it. But I remember being like, I'm done. I'm done because I wasn't that was the big thing am I going to jail am I going to jail and I wasn't and I remember I came back and I was texting people and I was like I'm still not happy because I thought once that was done I would be happy mm -hmm. right like I just kept thinking I'm so close to this being whole happy. process took like a month you said this was a month okay and it's like and I kept thinking the same way with drinking like I'm content but like and at this point I'm not content I'm not drinking you know, I'm shaking, I'm angry, I'm irritable, I'm looking on Instagram and watching other people at bars yeah. my age, you so know, hanging like, out. So they're like, you're having like some withdrawals? Like, you think? withdrawals, but also like, I mean, I was definitely detoxing, but also like, it's not even just the physical, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, there's, we're in such a drinking culture. Yeah. We're oh in, yeah. We're in such a drinking culture. And like, and the secrecy with my family and then, you know, friends of mine who were trying to be supportive in the best ways they knew how, but they didn't necessarily know, yeah. you know, and I had sober friends who were keeping like uh, an arm's length, which makes sense in hindsight. I would have as well if I saw someone behaving this way where they were like, and I remember one of them saying to me at the time, who I'm very close with, uh, saying to me at the time, you're not taking this seriously. And, and keeping an arm's length because again, like they have to protect their own sobriety, right? Yeah. And it's and it's a roller coaster. It's another roller coaster. And but my close friends were like still by my side. Like nope, we're with you. We're with you. We've always been with you. It's fine. And I remember being really angry that I still didn't feel right. And so I had like called my family, called my friends, told them what happened in court. Then I told everyone I hated them. I'm still sober. Mm. Told everyone I hated them and that they were terrible. And then I went into the bar and then that whole story. Went in there, had the ginger ale, then decided to start drinking. Mm. 
and just became a monster. Um, I like called people. Some people came down to the bar, I believe. This to... is after you find out you're not going to jail. Yeah, yeah, I come back over. to the city because okay. I was like in court in Terrytown. Okay. And I came back and yeah, and I just started drinking. Wow. And and just went to town. And I had two friends who came by, who came by to check on me and just stay with me. And it had to have been brutal for them. Um, and one of them, we're close, we've never talked about it. Um, and the other one was like, I'm done. Like, you know, and I remember they helped me back to my apartment and then we're like, by the way, I'm done after this. Like, I never want to hear from you again. Like, oh, this was no. not cool. This was not good. Like, I have been there for you. Yeah. I don't want to hear from you. Like. I want to make sure you're safe, and I want to make sure you're good, but, like, I'm done with this. So you still don't talk to this person? No, we're friends now. Okay. We're friends now. Okay. Um, there are some people who are not friends, um, but this person was not one of them. The other girl who was there, I she never said anything to me. Mutual friends of ours had texted me going, what are you doing? Like, she's so upset. Like, what is wrong with you? And now it's, like, just anger from everybody. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, we have been doing everything, bending over backwards. What is wrong with you? Mm. You know, and it's the same sort of thing. I don't want to talk to you. Like, wait, like I hope you're okay. Have a nice life. Don't want to talk to you. My, I guess I called my sister, said some mean stuff to her. I still don't know what it was. My mom texted me saying, stop calling your family. Stop calling your family. Stop being mean. Stop, I don't know what you're doing. Stop calling us. I don't, like, stop. You know, and it's people, it's a combination of people crying, saying you're saying awful, awful things. I can't watch this anymore. Or people being angry. You know, coming from a heartbroken place, but like being being angry, being like, I'm not, I'm done. Like, if this did not wake you up, what? what yeah, like, will? forget it. Yeah. I don't want to be around it. Which is fair. It's the right choice. It's a hundred percent the right choice. I okay. totally believe that. When you like see someone combusting like that, you can't. Like, they will take. Yeah. And and I remember someone saying to me, and I was angry about this for a long time before it like clicked, and I was like, they were right. Where. A friend of mine was like, you are not going to be happy until you take all of us down with you. That's the thing. Because I remember I was like, how could you say that to me? He was like, it's because you you want to take everyone down. He was like, because you're unhappy and it's yeah. not your fault. So you want to take everyone down with you. And like, it was, it was hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. And then the next morning I'd woken up and similar. And it's weird because you wouldn't think that would be a bottom. You would think everything before was. <laughs> But, like, I'd woken up and I had no one to call. Nobody wanted to talk to me anymore. Mm. And people did. Like, I called to say I'm sorry. And some people were very kind. And they were like, great. Glad you're okay. I have to go. Okay. Cool. Glad you're safe. Have to go. I'll see you sometime soon. And I, like, had nobody. Like, just instantly overnight. For stuff I didn't remember. I still don't remember a lot of it, you know. And it's like, but I didn't. I couldn't call my family couldn't call my friend I mean I probably could have still called all those people but it wasn't welcome right like and and I, I had understood that I had hurt them very badly to the point where like calling them was painful and I had called someone that I had worked at the restaurant with and he's sober many years and I called him and he always annoyed me because he was always very upbeat and you know and he'd always be like call your parents you should hang out with them it's important for kids <laughs> to hang out with their parents he was he's a very he's not wrong we are still good friends me and him he That's texts awesome. me he texts me once every two weeks because he does the crossword and he always asks me what words mean mm. so like i got a text from him the other day that was like what does like lethargic mean <laughs> and I'm That's like, lovely and i was like okay you don't have a dictionary i guess <laughs> so i'll answer this for you but it's very cute and i called him for some reason i just didn't know who to call and I called him and I like outpoured everything and I'm sure nothing I said made sense. Mm -hmm. And he was like, it's cool, it's fine. You just start over, it's not a big deal. Like you just start over and it's fine. And you know, and he was, he was, uh, he was very Christian. He is still very Christian and he was like, and, and a lot of people in recovery are very mm -hmm. faithful of their various faiths. Yeah. Um, okay. And I would say I am too, um, but Hindu obviously. And mm -hmm. so, uh, but he was very like, look, you know what, you just, keep going like God is still on our side just start again you know you just go to another meeting they're not gonna kick you out nobody's gonna kick you out just go again and I was like I like wanted to kill myself I felt awful I also had a hangover because I hadn't drank in a month oh, you yeah. know and and I felt so good the night before and then con contrasting it with now and I was like looking around my apartment and everything is a mess and everything smells and like just I didn't like everything was just disgusting to me in that moment and I felt like what a loser like 
I had all of this support and I literally overnight just flushed it all down the toilet. Mm -hmm. And and I don't even know what made me go to that meeting, but like I had just gone to another meeting. Yeah. And I mean, do you think maybe you just like had no one? I just had nowhere to go. Like... I really think that's what it is. I yeah. just had nowhere to go. Yeah, that makes sense. And I went there and I was like, I'm gonna kill myself. I said that. I announced it. And I was like, I'm gonna kill myself. And everybody was like, quiet, because there was always that moment where you're like, okay, the, not that anyone could tell that I was like not in trouble. Like I think you could see that someone like that is like on the brink of something. But yeah. you know, is this person saying it because they need attention right now, or are they like really intending yeah, on doing it? Us. Yeah, and yeah. I and I don't think I knew either. Okay. You know, I remember thinking about it. I was like, well, I live by the RFK bridge. You could just jump over. Like I remember thinking about it, but I don't know if I actually would have done it. I remember there was my my entire history is just being saved by ornery old people. But no. this was another ornery old person who just was like, "Well, why don't you just see? Why don't you just go to sleep? And if you feel like killing yourself tomorrow, kill yourself tomorrow. Like, wow. Why okay. do you have to do it today? Yeah. And I was like. That sound advice. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's no time limit on this. Like I'm so stupid. Yeah. But for some reason, I was like, "This man knows what he's talking about." Uh-huh. Like, Wait, you know, so interesting. It was, but but he must have known that maybe just taking or, a beat would help. Yeah, he was like, "Just go." He was like, "You can." I remember he was like, "You can kill yourself tomorrow," mm-hmm. and that was comforting more than anyone being like, "Don't kill yourself. Everything's fine. We've all relapsed." You know, or like not everyone, but like. They're like, that yeah, happens. That's, that's what I would have expected. Right, yeah, and people were doing that, and I didn't care. I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear it. Like, I couldn't hear it just like I couldn't hear all of the years and months of people being like, no, we love you. It's fine. Just don't do it again, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. we care about you. It's fine. But, like, the, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I can't do this anymore. This is really painful. You're hurting your sister. You're hurting your mother. You're hurting your friends. Like, this guy being like, just kill yourself tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think sometimes when someone is in that kind of a mental state, you just need to get on their level. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't want you to kill yourself. Right. But or he, or he was to... ambivalent. You know, he could have been, like, the guy who was, like, assessing me with his notebook. <laughs> like, he could have just Literally, I don't care about like, you. Like, literally, I don't care about you, which yeah. is also totally... I mean, but he chose to say something, yeah. which I think... Yeah, but I, I also think, think the not caring about you thing like that, I think that is such a big thing, too. And I think that's also cultural. Because as an alcoholic, for sure, and this comes up a lot in recovery, in conversations that you have, and in talks and and in the work but especially like growing up too like everything was always like these people's kids are you know they're like this one's you know going to law school and that one's going to med school and this one's going to be an engineer and like oh my god like they're looking at you and probably thinking you're going to go to community college because that was like the worst thing we could ever do as kids yeah and and it was always like what are people going to think of you like 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 keep up bit like you know yeah. like if you like go outside like dress like this people are gonna think I don't feed you like people are gonna think I don't clothe you like the amount of times I heard yeah, yeah, that yeah. growing up oh yeah <laughs> you know and it was always like what are other people gonna think about you right like that was yeah. just that like sums up the way that yeah I feel like I spent a lot of years I had to train myself to start thinking for so many years what do I think of me right like I didn't know I remember right. the first time I asked myself the question I was like I don't know. Do I think of me? I don't. Right. Like, I don't know anything about me. Yeah. But it was, like, to have these moments of, like, these people didn't care. You know, like, at least these two people, like, really didn't seem to care. And, like... Which is kind of freeing, Yeah, like, that, like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I am not the center of everyone's world. Like, it doesn't matter. That guy who met me in a McDonald's, we didn't even meet in an office. He was like, I'll assess you in the McDonald's because it's close to where I need to be afterwards. Uh, Okay. Like, it was just 100% his convenience. He did not care about my comfort. You know, and we're sitting there in this McDonald's. He's not thinking about me. He probably doesn't even remember who I am. Yeah. You know, like, I don't even register as a blip on his radar. And, like, and, and that... They always say, like, the root of addiction is selfishness. Like, that is the root okay. of it. And, and like, it's just the self-obsession. Like, I am the center of my own world. And, like, and, yeah. and all addicts are that way. Like, everything is about the way we, like, we cannot deal with things, so therefore we need to find, wait, it can't ever be us. It can't ever be, like, I need to do a, an inventory of myself. It's, like, I'm going to do your inventory. Like, here are all the things wrong with you, and, you know, that's probably impacting me in some sort of way, or I'm going to obsess over you because that frees me from needing to obsess over, you know, what I could be doing to better my own life. 
Russell Brand wrote this thing after Amy Winehouse died, mm -hmm. and he wrote an article. I think it's in the Guardian or something. And he and it was it's beautifully written. I'm, I love the stuff that he does for addiction. And he wrote this beautiful essay, and I remember it stayed with me because at a certain point he writes something like the problem wasn't drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol were my solution to the problem. Yeah. It was never, that was never the problem. Okay. The problem was I couldn't deal with reality. You know, and like that, like all of those things, I wouldn't even say reading that article clicked it, like it's just the combination of everything clicked it together where I was like, okay, I'm going to these meetings, I'm going to court, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm doing all this community service, you know, and nothing is clicking because I am not, I just removed my medicine. You know, I just removed the medicine of not being able to deal with the fact that, like, I never learned how to have healthy boundaries. I never learned how to control my own behavior. I never learned how to not measure myself against other people, which was a thing that I was taught to do by my parents. Yeah. And of no malicious intent. Yeah. You know, it was the way they were taught. Yeah. You know, it's how they still lived their lives. And I was taught to not have hobbies. My career yeah. came first. Yeah, so true, so true. So I want to wrap this up right here for now, and we will be back next week for a second part to keep discussing this and to talk more about the recovery process. But I did just want to say to our listeners that the reason I wanted to explore this topic, other than the fact that Desis don't really talk about addiction in general, and I wanted to bring that topic to light, is because I think that a lack of boundaries with Desi culture and families can play into destructive behavior. And in this case, it manifested itself into alcoholism. You know, you discussed how just the stark contrast of having had too much control in your house growing up versus too much freedom when you were in college was like a stimulus overload for you. Um, you mentioned you felt very unprepared for the real world. Uh, you also mentioned how being conditioned to prioritize certain things like your career and what other people think of you are the kind of things that led either to your descent into alcoholism or a delay in recovery and so on and so forth and I mean sure a lot of this is specific to alcoholism but I think it also sounds very familiar because the underlying issues of anxiety and boundaries are relatable to many of us and I don't think you have to be an addict or recovering addict to relate to this. So anyways, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you learned something from it. We'll be back next week with more on this topic. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, please reach out at thedesicondition at gmail.com. You can also follow me at thedesicondition on Facebook and Instagram and go and like every single thing I post. Okay, thanks. Bye.